When a major disaster strikes, direct relief boots hit the ground soon after. Sometimes it requires chartering a helicopter, riding a ferry, or landing an amphibious aircraft. But someone always gets there. Direct Relief's emergency responders are some of the first to arrive in places that have been entirely cut off, to most. This week, we're talking with someone whose boots were on the ground for two of this year's most severe disasters, Cyclone Idai in Mozambique and Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas. Hey, is this Gordon? Hey, yeah, can you hear me? Gordon Wilcock has been in the business of disaster response for years. He joined Direct Relief in 2010. If you can't tell, he's based in Australia. When I asked him what he does, this is what he said. Okay. You want me to start? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I guess working working with the emergency response team, uh, basically we're working with any of our partners that are affected by disasters. Okay, I'm going to interrupt. Direct Relief staff use a lot of jargon, so let me help you decode his response. Partners are organizations that administer healthcare to people i.e. a health center. These are the places that Direct Relief sends medicine, supplies, etc. You know, building connections to um, regional organizations. Okay, regional organizations. These are local organizations and government agencies within the country that have a hand in coordinating public resources, like healthcare. So, for example, most countries have what's called a Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Health oversees a country's healthcare system. They set policy, enforce regulations, fund programs. They know the health needs in their country. So after a disaster, Direct Relief goes to them to ask them what they need, since they know best. Okay, back to Gordon. You know, responding directly to disasters when they're, when they're of a scale that require us to get on the ground. Uh, and then, you know, responding to sort of the bulk of the disasters we respond to or, you know, we get involved with uh, uh, disasters we don't actually need to travel to. The difference being that some disasters cut off supply channels. If there's no way to get supplies in, because, say, the airports are flooded, then Direct Relief sends people to deliver supplies in person. Uh, So I guess, in a nutshell, um, monitoring disasters, working on... Uh, quite a lot of the work's associated with our ongoing disaster responses where we're, we're giving out grants and we're running projects um, and then, you know, um, responding to new disasters coming up. Last March, Cyclone Edai in Mozambique called for an on-the-ground response. The storm brought catastrophic flooding that wiped out homes and inundated cities. More than 1,000 people were killed. The storm system actually formed over the land, so it was... It formed over um, Southeast Africa. It, it dropped a lot of rain. It then went out to sea and turned into the cyclone and then came back and hit Mozambique. So it was, they'd already received you know, torrential rainfall and they already had um, high water levels and flooding in some areas of the country. This, the, the storm system then went and did a U-turn and came back and, uh, and then brought much more rain and obviously high winds. So a large, yeah, large areas of the country were, were completely flooded and they were cut off. That was one of, one of the features of that disaster was you have these communities that, you know, have no power, you know, bridges are washed away, uh, so they're effectively isolated by some areas where there was a huge inland sea. Gordon was sent to Mozambique to deliver supplies to health centres in these isolated communities. 
initially we, we arrived in Maputo, the capital, um, and we coordinated with the UN and and the, the government, and then we, we went up to the affected area. The main city was, was Beta, uh, which is sort of in the central central coast, uh, so sort of midway up, up the country. Um, and I guess some of the main things we saw there was obviously the city was badly damaged, uh, a lot of the health facilities were badly damaged, uh, and a lot of the communities, uh, even though the city itself, there was some, you know, quite a lot of the structures were, were okay, but surrounding the city, a lot of people were living in, in sort of in, in uh, high, high density areas with, with um, sort of wooden structures, and, and a lot of those hadn't survived. So a lot of people were then living out in the open, um, you know, so lacking shelter, Food, water, and then that was that was leading into a, a high, a, a lot of primary health issues. You know, maternal child health care was a real issue because the access to health facility was reduced, and then you know those vulnerable communities were living out in the open. So I guess one of our focuses was, uh, and, and one of the things that came apparent was, you know, we needed to to support this base level health care, uh, those primary needs. Uh, that weren't being met, and um, so that's one of the focus we worked with with uh, our partner um, HAI, uh, and they they've been working there for a long time, had a very good understanding of the of the health system, and we were able to support them with supplies and funding, and uh, and also we've we've now built built two health facilities, so they're back up and running and, and better than they were before the storm. So. While you were in Mozambique, did you speak with any of uh, the locals? Were you able to get um, kind of an idea of the feeling on the ground amongst uh, the people there, the community? Yeah, I did. I mean, I spoke to our partners and, and, and definitely some of the officials and, and health workers and, uh, and some of the local people. And basically, they were fairly shell-shocked. Uh, it's not not an event they were used to having. Um, I think the the scale of uh, I mean they, Mozambique has experienced flooding in the past, uh, but I I think oftentimes when these big hurricanes come through and they hit, it's a sort of a, a once in a generational thing, and uh, it, it takes everyone by surprise. Um, and and people aren't anticipating strength of the wind and the the potential damage and, and things like storm surges, you know, we saw the same things in Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines uh, and, and other areas, you know, and the same in the Bahamas, to be honest. Uh, so, yeah, some of the locals I spoke with were, yeah, shell-shocked. They'd, you know, they'd had, obviously, um, people being killed, then displaced. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think just just coming to terms with, you know, life, post-disaster, you know, how they're going to rebuild, you know, what impact is this going to have longer term? Because I think for the, I think one of the characteristics of the communities is, you know, we have all this focus on the emergency phase and then, the, you know, the short, short of reconstruction, we move into the reconstruction phase. But for those communities living in those areas, I mean, the, there's a long tail to all these disasters uh, where, you know, public infrastructure has to be rebuilt, you know, people have to build their own homes back, you know, a lot of their services might have been damaged, and it, you know it might be years until they sort of get back to a place where they were before the storm, or it might take longer than that. And and I think in the current uh, climate, it's possible they get hit by another storm in that time. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's stressful and it's 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 difficult to come to terms with. 
you said in this current climate, it they might um, kind of experience another storm of this intensity. Uh, when you say that, are you referencing climate change? Yeah, I think um, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, I think to to what extent, and I'm no expert. I, I mean, but to what extent, um, you know, changes in the climate are increasing the frequency of of these events. I'm not actually sure, but it seems definitely there's a there's a correlation in terms of increasing intensity of these events. Gordon's right about intensity. Scientists agree that climate change is fueling more intense storms, which makes sense. The warmer the air, the more moisture it can hold, the more rain a storm can drop. Not only are storms bringing unprecedented flooding, they're also whipping up more powerful winds. A one degree Fahrenheit rise in ocean temperatures can increase a hurricane's wind speeds by up to 20 miles an hour. That means the proportion of category four and five storms is increasing right in line with global temperatures. And we're seeing more extreme storms as a result. Dorian was the fact that it sort of turned into a category five and then it sort of sat on the Bahamas for 36 hours was unusual. Um, so they, you know, and seeing the impact after the disaster in some of the areas was, you know, it was more akin to an earthquake than a hurricane from my experience. It was like total devastation of Marsh Harbor. Um, yeah. You know, and then some of the hurricanes some of the hurricanes we've seen that have come in and hit America and the, the sort of torrential rains they've brought. Uh, yeah, it just, I think definitely anecdotally, it, yeah, last sort of five years, it seems just just a higher regularity of intense storms. And, and it feels now that we've sort of when, when one starts forming in the Caribbean and heads towards the Caribbean in the US, it's just more of a sense that it, it could jack up into a Category 5 and call, cause more problems. So. But climate change isn't the only force intensifying the effects of natural disasters. Urbanization is a culprit as well. More and more people are moving to cities to find work. As population density increases, the potential fallout from disasters does as well. When these areas are hit, the impacts are highly concentrated, affecting a greater number of people than if the population were more evenly distributed. It's a trend Gordon has seen firsthand. So you've got this combination of... of sort of human factors in terms of movement of people, um, you know, the nature of their economies and, you know, factors that increase their risk in terms of the community's ability to cope with a disaster. At the same time, you know, it seems as though we're getting these, you know, more frequency of intense storms. We hear a lot about, like, this is the biggest storm since or the biggest fire since, um, yeah. And then when you've been on the ground after these disasters, are there any commonalities in terms of what you've observed in the people that have been impacted by the disasters? Yeah, I guess, I I mean, I guess people who have, all these communities that have been, you know, had to experience these sort of disasters, there's, you know, you do see commonalities in terms of, uh, obviously, the the effects of the impact uh, on them, and you know, coming to terms with with you know what's just happened to their community, um, but also common traits and characteristics in terms of of you know demonstrating resilience in the face of these disasters. You know, especially uh, you know we interact a lot with health workers, um, and and you know 
people leading health in their areas and then people administering health in their areas and and sort of those those people at the at the real at the coalface of of the response you know administering to their communities i think one of the common traits i've seen amongst them is this um yeah resilience in the face of these disasters they keep keep working they keep uh they stay at their facilities uh they keep um you know treating patients and doing what they can with often pretty you know you know poor in a poor situation you know lack of access to supplies or equipment um but they sort of you know maintain their um i guess morale and uh, optimism do you have any examples of that uh while you were responding to either cyclone Dai or uh Dorian in the Bahamas this year uh, yeah, I think um, one of our partners, uh, Health Alliance International, who we work with in Mozambique, you know, we were, I, I got to, to Beira, which was sort of ground zero fairly fairly soon after the event. Um, and they were, their office in the city had been fairly untouched and, and the staff were all, you know, furiously working away. Uh, and it became clear that for some of them they'd been working there since the storm they hadn't really stopped and for some of them their own houses had been really badly damaged and they they were basically out there doing their job and putting you know putting off dealing with their own issues until you know they'd they'd sort of finished responding so it was pretty amazing to see them you know working away uh, professionally you know whilst you know their homes were maybe you know roofs had been damaged or you know had sustained major damages and they were sort of just making it work but they were turning up and they you know they're being professional and and getting on with it and that's I think that's pretty impressive and you see that elsewhere as well with health workers are uh, you know in the Bahamas you know some of the hospitals we visited in in uh, on the Abacos you know the staff had been living at the facility sort of just sleeping on the floor and then you know treating patients during the day so it's it's pretty impressive wow wow well i think that's all i have um for now but thank you so much all right well let us know if you need anything else yeah cool all right thank you all right Marius. all right bye after a call i got an email from gordon it was an alert for another storm in mozambique Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. A special thanks to Gordon for calling in all the way from Australia. For Direct Relief, I'm Amory Graffinelli.